thank you so much Aishwarya for that uh, very uh, exhaustive introduction for both of us, very kind of you. Uh, before we begin, I would just like to tweak the topic a little. Anish, with your permission, can we call it wildlife conservation in this rapidly changing world? Uh, before we begin, if you may for us, just set the premise out as to what it is, what is the background in which we must proceed with this discussion and then we can take it forward. Thank you, Ashwara. Thank you, Kartik. Um, wildlife conservation is a rapidly growing field actually. About 50 years ago, hardly anybody spoke about it because forests were extensive, natural ecosystems were ex extensive, seas were much purer. Uh, people were dependent on forests and they have been dependent on forests for thousands of years now. But because the populations were much lower and the greed of human beings was yet not what it is right now, the ecosystems were healthy. As a result, our impact on the ecosystem was not visible and the ecosystems were self-repairing themselves. However, over the last, um, you know, I would say more than about five decades, because of the burgeoning growth in populations, because of the development that has happened at such a rapid rate. See, about 200 years ago, obviously Europe was developing and had, you know, pretty much developed quite a bit. But the biggest populations were in Southeast Asia, South Asia, mm. yes. Africa, and those nations were still highly underdeveloped. And so the ecosystems were pretty good there. And these are all largely uh, tropical forests. So because of the high dependence, degradation of our ecosystems, also technology has really taken the infrastructure growth to a different level. The number of roads that have come up, highways, six lane, cutting through extensive forests, now they are all fragmented. Poverty has risen, although we now talk about so many billionaires, but still an overwhelmingly large number of people on this planet are still below the borderline. They obviously need the forests and other ecosystems because they cannot afford a 20 rupee water. They cannot go to the cities and work. So they are dependent on the forest. Now, such large populations, especially in India, let's come back to India. Um, we are looking at nearly 300 million people who are dependent for their livelihoods every single day on our protected areas alone. Hmm. India has 870 protected areas and we have 300 million people who are dependent on those forests in some way or the other. Tigerisms, which everybody now know because of the project Tiger that was launched in 1973 um, and today we have nearly 52 tiger reserves. Together, these tiger reserves constitute only 2.3% of India. And 3 million people live inside these tiger reserves. And nearly 100, about 80 to 100 million people live along the periphery of these reserves. The protected areas that I am talking about constitutes only about 5% of India. Despite laws to the contrary, they still continue to live in there. Yeah. Absolutely right. So, we are in a situation where 
development is a necessity for a country to keep their GDPs up. And development is a very destructive, destructive type of development right now because it's cutting through existing ecosystem which is already depleted because those large populations of people are dependent on the forest for fuel wood. They are dependent for protein. They are dependent for so many things. Pino forest produce, fruits, fungi, so many things. And they don't know other way. They've been doing this since ages. They have been doing it since ages, but their populations have grown six, seven folds. Um, and because of the disparity in the economic status of people, they are forced to be more and more dependent on the jungle. As a result, the forests have all thinned, which means their canopies have all thinned. Now we are looking at, if you look at the uh, satellite images of forests in India, it looks like the forests are doing well. But if you went in and read the fine line, fine print, you will know that the forests that are existing today are degraded, which means the quality of forest has gone down. So the green cover looks the same, and a lot of it is plantation. Mm -hmm. So which is monoculture. So it has needed not much value. Uh, but if you went in and said thick forest, medium uh, thick forest and scanty forest, then the good quality forest has got converted into mm -hmm. medium value, and the not so good forests are even worse. So that's happening not only in India but across the developing nations. Um, India has the highest road network of all non-American countries. So America, that is United States alone, has a road network which is uh, larger than us. But India, which is so much smaller than America, has a road network which is the world's second largest road network. And we are building nearly 22 to 23 kilometers of highways every day. And that's going to reach about 44 to 45 kilometers. And so, on one end, we are forced to develop at that rate. On the other end, poor people are becoming poor. And the final layer is of climate change because of all that has happened over the last 200 years uh, industrialization. Uh, we have had the worst monsoons over the last 10 years. In fact, the, the last 19 years have been the hottest years on earth. Uh, we have extremely frequent weather events. Nagpur is pretty much receiving rain every month. We have very intense weather events. All our ocean, uh, all our coasts are being hammered. So climate change is now started to impact the world in a way which a single nation cannot do much about. The impact of it is different for different classes of people, which means people who are rich are insulated, but the poor are going to get hammered because they lose crops. They will become even poorer. They get into a vicious cycle of debt. So what I'm trying to say here is that on one end, development is a necessity and a destructive type of development is happening. On the other hand, the there is a huge disparity between rich and the poor. Few rich, very very rich people and overwhelmingly large poor population and third climate change. So these three things coming together, it's almost impossible today to envisage a safe living space for other organisms. Anish, uh, I wanted to interject a 
about a minute back. And the reason for that is because you've picked up a very crucial point about climate change. Uh, we must understand that it behooves us now to look at climate change not from a local perspective, but from a global perspective, because climate change knows no boundaries. So if you could address this issue from a global perspective, and we just had COP26, so if you could speak about that a little, that would, I'm sure shed a valuable so, light on this. So climate change, a uh, lot of us know what it is now, but largely the contributors to climate change are the Western nations. Those nations developed much before us, 200 years ago, bears went extinct, American bisons went extinct, so many forests were wiped off out of Europe, most of these forests have been rebuilt. So what you see now, those are planted forests. So at that point, there was huge amount of pressure on trees. So the industrialization that happened, the forest degradation that happened, and those nations eventually went out to other nations like ours to take on our natural wealth. So we have had nearly 200 years of colonial rule, and they came into our country because they needed wood. Can you imagine? So that trains could run. At that point, a lot of our old growth forests have been cut. So when we talk of climate change right now, people are looking at China and India because we are the first and the second most populated nations. And we are wanting to develop. China is developing at a much faster rate than India. If you look at their GDPs, they are, they are not even comparable to us. So the world is saying that if India with 1.4 billion people and China with many more than India are going to develop like the West has developed 200 years ago, we have no hope in them. And so there is huge amount of pressure on the developing nations from the developed nations to curtail their carbon footprint. Which means that they cannot have coal-fired power plants because coal is injurious for the environment. That means mining cannot happen. So what is happening is that in currently everybody understands the impact of climate change. The only way we can curtail it is if we can have technology that can move us away from non-renewable resources. The only way we can solve this is if we have uh, engines batteries that can store electricity. Today, solar power cannot be stored. Solar power has to be used. Okay, the inverters that we have are not, uh, it's not uh, feasible to scale that up, right? So, there is technological uh, involvement here, but our nations that are developing, their GDPs are under severe threat. There is huge amount of unemployment. There is huge amount of, uh, as I said, inequity. So it's impossible for a country like India to move away from the injurious uh, industries that we are in right now. And that's the reason why when COP26 happens, there is a very clear cut divide between people who have already polluted and the people who are currently being asked not to pollute. Because they say that it's not our problem, it's the historical carbon that we are fighting right now. But the fact is, poor people are everywhere on this planet. The fact is, natural ecosystems are much more depleted than they were ever before. Extinction rates are higher 
than any other uh, time on earth and that too well, we, are, we are comparing it with uh, ice ages or big volcanoes that suddenly increase the temperature on the planet. Today we are losing more than 5000 species in a year and these are species that we know of. But barely read about them in the newspaper as or media. Yeah, and and we, according to ecologists, we have 1.3 million species on Earth. However, scientists know that every time they go down into the depth of the ocean with a vessel and they collect animals from the bottom and they come up, nearly 85% of what they collect is due to science. And based on those samples. Scientists are saying that on planet Earth, we probably have up to 9 million different species. And this 5000 figure that I am saying is only from the known species. So imagine the actual extinction rate is likely to be almost 7 or 8 times more than that. Anish, before we digress to this issue, uh, since we were on COP26 and we were talking about uh, solutions. I personally am an incorrigible optimist. I still feel that we are still, we haven't reached that point of no return. I personally feel that India did make a, put up a good stand there. But you have already viewed it, we are on the way, GDP is as important as anything else. Unfortunately, there was no forthcoming solution. What do you personally think can be, in addition to technology, how do you think we can actually rectify this? No, so it's a good question because finally what is important is how are you going to find the solution when there is so much of inequity not only within the population but across countries. How can there be one formula that fits all? Every nation will say that you know, uh, I have already destroyed but now I realize so I want to put pressure on other nations. So India and other nations like China and even Africa is saying that countries who have already developed and countries who have actually destroyed the environment over the last 200 years need to pay back, which means if India <coughs> needs to bring in those technologies, then those technologies cannot be brought in because they are expensive technologies yet. They cannot be brought back in by India because we don't have the money. So what India and other nations are saying that we want to definitely protect this planet because our future generations are at risk. However, unless we develop we are, not be, we are not going to be able to generate enough income and money to plow back into energy efficient solutions. So why can't other nations support such activities? Which means, like in India, we, we talk of subsidies where if, if it's about farmers, so we want to give them subsidies so that they can farm, they can earn their livelihood from it. What India and other nations are saying is that America, North America, several countries of Europe should pump money in greener technologies so that nations like India can balance it. So that's that's one thing. But your question and the answer to that is the social capital. And I'm a proud Indian. I always say that uh, if any country knows conservation of natural resources, it is India. Because in our culture, we worship wildlife, we worship the banyan tree, we worship all life. This is the only nation where even when a tiger attacks a human being, the family itself who's lost a young human in that family doesn't say that I want this tiger killed. They 
invariably say, you and I have seen this, they invariably, you know, when you talk to them, they say, you know, my son should have gone to the forest at 5 in the morning. And you think of situations where from a zoo, some 10 tigers and lions escaped. Mm -hmm. And within a day in the US, in the US, a police force and a lot of people who had the gun license went out after these animals and shot each one of them. And they were tame animals. Whereas in India, you have people dying, 250 people in Chhattisgarh two years ago died because of elephant attacks. And yet people have so much respect for nature. And so in India, culturally, we are predisposed to take an energy efficient route. We talk of recycling from many years. And you and I know Chadar, when we had a blanket, the blanket became old. We used the blanket for something else, then it, it was cut and made pocha, then it was used to wipe their feet, right? So we have been recycling things, right? For ages. That's our culture. So India, the strength is the social capital. Nearly, I would say 65% of Indians are below 35 years old. They are impressionable. We need to see how those children can be educated so that they understand the value of nature and the importance of nature for Indians and therefore that social capital can really change the tide because so many artisans, there are so many communities with so much of knowledge about nature and their culture. We have to have a business model in such a way that it is a decentralized economy. India should not have a centralized economy. India is a large country with so many different cultures. So many different societies, so many different tribes. We need to decentralize power, we need to decentralize water. Once that happens, you will have hubs rather than having a Delhi, Bombay, Nagpur, Chennai. We should have a self sustainable economy at the local level. And that is what will break because once you come to big mega cities, we do superfluous things. We use more electricity, we have big malls. Where most of the malls are vacant most of the time, but it's uh, then AC so is on tomorrow. Right. So if you decentralize, there is a cash flow which is local, which means the people who manufacture sell it to people who live next to them. So the money remains there. Otherwise, what happens? There is a cycle. Otherwise, I am a villager. If I am a farmer, I earn money. Then I buy a motorcycle. The money goes outside the village, right? And if I go for entertainment outside, it goes outside. What we have to create as an India is to not ape the best for all these things, but to have our own economic model and that I think is decentralized, smaller hubs with cash flows that remain with people, by the people and farmers because 65% of Indians are farmers. Can you imagine? Even today, 65%. Their next crop is dependent on the vagaries of nature. If we can find technology so that our farming becomes efficient, so I would say to fight climate change, the biggest thing we need to do is to make sure that the return on investment of water, which means 10 liters of water, what it is producing today, can actually produce three times more. Today, we are having inefficient farming practices and we are wasting so much water. And these are the poorest of the people who are extracting our rivers are drying. So we are extracting water from underground. That water is going to get depleted. We started uh, taking out water from aquifers. Aquifers. So that, so if, so I'll just say a few. One is decentralization of power, means electricity. Creating local economies, 
so that there is backward migration, so that people don't want to go to Bombay, people from Bombay will say we'll go and stay somewhere else. Third, efficient farming. And fourth, which is a no-brainer, which is renewable energy. And certainly have enough solar potential and enough wind potential. So if we do these four things only, we will move into a situation where uh, the impact, the negative impact on economy because of climate change and human beings will go down. We need to do that first. Then we can start talking about other things. Anish, you've the last two points that you made have essentially bridged over this discussion to a policy issue. And let us assume for a moment that COP27 also ends in a stalemate. What immediate policy decisions would you like to see in India to address these issues? We've seen the three, four points that you've made, which would radically change the overall environment. But what policy decisions do we need today? This is a long-term solution that we've discussed. Today, what do we need? What can we change immediately? See, I think um, I'm not in the government, but when I Whenever I'm in a meeting where um, economy or development is being discussed, I've seen that the various ministries are, even if they are well-meaning, somehow their actions don't all come together. So what we need is a policy that can create automatic convergence, which means that when you are in a village like setup, I, that village cannot allow an elephant or a tiger in its vicinity. If they have to fight for water, if they have to fight to have a toilet, if they have to fight to have crops that can sustain, can, can survive the weather. So what we need is a is an integrated approach wherein from the collector's office itself, there all the schemes are integrated and the villagers are first taken care of for their basic needs. Once that happens, automatically their uh, itself will change because in the past, as I said, the culture was important, but now the next generation has the aspiration to go to the big cities, to, to earn more, to have a car, to have multiple houses. In that kind of a scenario, you have to have a government that all the departments within the government have to be aligned. You have to make sure that farming, again I'm coming to that, the policy where farmers can willingly be moved from a no-profit mostly a zero-sum game kind of farming which is subsistence farming to agroforestry so that they can bring back the forests with forest will come back the biodiversity and because they have brought back the forest and because they don't need to guard those farms because the trees can take care of themselves they will have extra time to build their own capacity so you need a efficient farming practice moving to agroforestry kind of farming, where we have herbs, medicines, a lot of other things can be it's hybridized like that, and then build capacity for people rather than giving them donations and schemes that give them money, build capacity so that they can run their own economy. So, yes, if I was to put it in elementary words, what you're necessarily saying is that it has to be a ground approach, or right. you have to first take care of what needs to be done at the ground level instead of somebody sitting in high offices deciding what needs to be done there. And uh, there are many such examples in front of us in Maharashtra itself. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, there was a village social transformation program that was run and it was fascinating. The micro plans of the villages were made. Micro plans is what the villages want, which means every village will create a plan for what they need for the next year. And that, so the money for that comes from the collector's office, but the micro plan is not ready. Now, Maharashtra has digitized micro plans, so they are all there, which means all the ministries can see what they are wanting. So that is extremely important. So you have to go to the Gram Sabha. It's not Delhi. You have to go to the Gram Sabha and ask them what they need. And if you go there, they will want to protect their backyard. See, you and I are not capable of protecting because we have a superfluous life. We have an intention. But the people who live in the remotest part of India are attached to the soil. So that soil and their attachment has to be utilized. Currently, it is underutilized. That's why the problem. Anish, uh, I cannot have you here and not discuss some very pressing issues on which I feel you are one of the leading experts in the country. I want to talk about fragmented forests. And uh, before I ask you a specific question, you and I, we both uh, worked on the Pandakara T1 case. Uh, in fact, my question I would like to just borrow from a, from an article. Reporting on that T1 article, also known as the Abhi case, New York Times opened an article by saying that Maharashtra is a victim of its own success. The success that they were referring to was of course that we've managed to protect the tigers. But we've unfortunately not managed to protect forests. So uh, my question to you is, in the larger scheme of things, what is more important today? Uh, corridors or protection in protected areas? The biggest feature of most of us are wild animals. See, tigers have been here for 3 million years. Human beings have been here only for the last 160,000 years. So we are machadas in front of wildlife. Flowering plants have been around for 250 million years. Termites have been around for nearly 570 million years. And we are trying to fight a battle and win with termites. We are never going to be able to win. So if you look at wildlife, uh, tigers will tell you what to do. When Project, Project Tiger was launched, in 1970s, which means 50 years ago, next year is the 50th year of Project Tiger. They said that tiger populations are gone, forest is there, but we need to protect uh, forest, which means the protected area network has to be strengthened. So at that point in time, to bring back tigers, which means to allow them to breed, and by tigers, let me tell you, I am talking about wildlife. Tiger is a symbol of wildlife. It is not the only thing that needs to be protected. So please don't get me wrong. So I'm using him as a mascot, right? It's a flagship species. So why, when I say tiger, it is about crocodiles. When I say crocodiles, it is about the fish. It is about the beetle. It is about uh, butterflies also. So when you, uh, back then, because there was hardly anything that was protected, India till then was hunting. The British hunted left, right and center. After that, the uh, Maharajas and, and people had a lot of guns because the British left behind a lot of guns. So there was so much of ammunition that people were hammering wildlife. So at that point, they had to stop it. And so they said protected area network. So national parks and sanctuaries started getting declared. Today we have more than 550 national parks and sanctuaries and about 300 other types of protected areas. So, um, so that was the right time to have protected without protection, without the Wildlife Protection Act of 1972, without the Forest Conservation Act of 1980, we wouldn't have uh, we would have had mass exodus, refugee situations in India. Many of our rivers would have gone, right? So it would have been, we would have been migrating out of India. So 
definitely it was required. Then populations of animals started going up because they had been depleted. The moment they went up, they spilled over because then those parts could not confine them and they moved out. So they told you that if we are going to go, then you have to follow, which means you have to protect those areas. Now protection there means different stuff because when you protect the park, the rights of the people is sometimes not taken care of. But when, when the tigers or any elephants are going out in a human dominated landscape, there protection is different and that protection cannot be done with a lati. It has to be done through social enterprises, which means create a social fencing for wildlife. What is social fencing? Where people feel that wildlife is beneficial to them. So if the villager says that a tiger's presence is good for my economy and my bank balance, then he would want to save the tiger. But if that tiger becomes a demon for him because A, it is killing its cattle, it can kill him down. Plus, there is no direct benefit of the tiger in terms of money. Which means, tigers have told us that you have to protect some areas where they breed and those tigers have to move and you have to build that corridor so that they move from one path to another. And this is not just tiger, even the great Indian mustard or ghadiyal, which are species that require all these. Then you have to have a human population that gets benefited. So it's about economics. How can we create an economic model where money from tourism or any other industry can plow back into the local community? Today, I could be sitting in, in Bombay and have a, a chain of hotels in different places of India and make millions of rupees. But if that money were to be shared with people, so Taroba for that matter, I am saying all this because Maharashtra is one of a few states that have got it right. Taroba Tiger Reserve. Uh, I can tell you when I was there in 1980s, 1991-92, we could walk into Taroba, tigers were there, but we hardly saw them. We used to go from school for bird watching on Taroba Lake. And from then to now, Tadova has one of the highest densities of tigers in central India. And the forest department has opened up nearly 20 safari routes which are run by the villagers. As a result, now hundreds of people are coming there. They are traveling inside the forest on vehicles that belong to the villagers. The guides in that are the villagers, their homestays are being run. So what is happening is, tigers obviously stop people from entering. So a lot of uh, people who are dependent on the forest uh, suddenly had an issue. But now, tourism is gaining so much of momentum that their income from tourism is more than what they are earning from their subsistence farming. And now that model has to be replicated across India. Uh, tigers is a low hanging fruit because it's charismatic, everybody wants to see, but we have to find ways of, and there are so many bird watchers, so we need to create that model. Once we do that, therefore tourism also decentralized. If we are able to do that, people will start seeing, and anyways our culture is predisposed. Anish, that discussion can be an hour long discussion in itself, tourism. Uh, but I have Aishwarya signaling to me that we have about reached our time limit. So if we, uh, I leave it open for any questions. If uh, uh, do we have time for that? So my question is like uh, we um, by saying tigers, like you said when you use you know, the word tiger, we not only uh, refer to the tigers but also other wildlife. 
why is there a very less sound of giraffes and other animals? Hippopotamus, like we can say. If if the giraffe sound increases, we'll also be able to see them in the national parks and zoos as well. Also, some massive other questions combined. Do you promote zoos? Zoos is like uh, I, I think that zoos are useless. So because um, we are just paying the money to watch the animals, we can do the same thing in the national parks as well. But we are uh, there. We are not caging them. We are setting them free. For the yeah. So when you say giraffes and hippopotamus, basically you are talking about these animals. They are not found in India. They are African species, and they are in good numbers there. But in India, let us assume that you are talking about animals which are equivalent to theirs, which means herbivores. So there is an ecological connection between tigers and food. So tiger population has gone up only because prey population has gone up. So if spotted deer, sambar deer, nilgai, wild pig populations had not gone up, tiger population would have gone. Tigers don't survive only on livestock, that is uh, cattle. They do take cattle in disturbed areas, but otherwise they go for wild. So it is all connected. People have not noticed it, but there are. I'll give you an example in Nagpur, uh, which is in Karnataka. In the late 60s, Dr. Ulas Karan, who is one of the most renowned uh, carnivore biologists on earth, on his transect when he used to walk, he would see two to three spotted deer per square kilometer. Today, that mark is 65. So. All that has happened. Otherwise, that's why tigers are important because it's at the top of the food chain. When you count tigers, you automatically know what is happening below it. That's one. Your second question: uh, zoos. Was zoos? I definitely don't subscribe to zoos. Uh, zoos were initiated by the West because they were fascinated, fascinated to see animals in the tropical countries. So when they went to those countries and they saw so many species. They would want. They always wanted to bring them, and so that people back in their countries could enjoy them. Zoos have helped in the past because some of those zoos, which are maintained properly and the captive breeding was successful, they have been able to restock those animals in habitats that have lost those species. However, the way most of our ninety-five percent of our Indian zoos are only small and. Feet by ten feet kind of cages and a very very I would say a difficult and inhuman kind of a situation. Uh, so it is not playing the role of conservation. So definitely, wildlife like us love freedom and we must all strive to give them that freedom. Uh, and zoos may be required only when you want to breed a certain species to introduce them back. But otherwise, I don't think they have a role to play. At this, day. you know, only to supplement what Anish was saying, and without naming the zoo, uh, with my own eyes, I have once seen a leopard put into a cage, which was not high enough for it to stand, and not long enough for it to lie down. Imagine being in that position even for ten minutes. Uh, of course, for the larger goat, which is the introduction, I personally feel maybe not even zoos we can have. Rehabilitation centers, and then we can relocate them back into the wild.
Vision Beyond.